Please note all the activities in this episode were carried out under the supervision of a trained professional. You're listening to the National Trust podcast. I'm Kate Martin, Area Ranger at Formby, and today I'm at a secret canal side location for a nature ramble with a delicious twist. I'm starting this ramble today, walking along a canal towpath. Now, during lockdown, a lot of people have been taking time to notice nature more in their local area. Today, I've left my stomping ground on the northwest coast to connect with nature in a way that lots of us don't really experience. I'm now going to meet Fred the Forager, who's going to take me on a Blackberry walk, because how much more connected with nature can you get than putting it in your mouth and eating it? And I've turned off the canal towpath now, down quite a narrow, twisty, turny path into a wooded area. And I can hear water in front of me, so let's see where it takes us. There's so many different plants, all loads of different flowers. It's really beautiful. And here's a man armed with two beautiful wicker baskets. So I believe you're called Fred the Forager. Where does that nickname come from? I run a business called The Wild Side of Life and I spend most of my time teaching people how to forage for medicinal and edible plants. Now I've already seen some blackberries and they are looking really juicy. Can you take me to a place where they're even more bountiful? Well, I'll do my best, but I think we need to get out into maybe a more sunny spot. So why is this a place that you think is good to come and pick blackberries? There's perhaps a mile and a half of country park where anyone's allowed to go and there are blackberry bushes all over the place. So it's a free supermarket? Absolutely, for that and many other things too. This looks like a blackberry bush to me. Blackberries are quite distinctive, but there are a number of other lobed fruits that you could mistake it for. So there are things like the dewberry, which tends to be much smaller and more compact. There's the raspberry. And if you were up in the mountainous areas, perhaps up in Scotland, you might find the cloudberry another fruit of a similar shape, but the colour's completely different. So what are your top tips for picking and storing blackberries? When you're picking them, run your hands gently over the cluster of berries and just with your fingertips, roll them slightly around each berry because the ones that are ripe will literally just sort of pop off. Okay. Don't use a carrier bag. It will all get quite mushy and bashed. Okay. So the shelf life is dramatically reduced. So try to use an open container of some sort. We've not done too well for blackberries, I'm afraid. And looking around here, I can see nettles. But apart from that, I can't see anything else here that I would know to pick to eat. So today I'm going to introduce you to some of the unsung heroes of the plant world, many of which you may have pulled out of your garden as weeds or trampled over. Great, let's go and find out. There's a few things you need to remember. We have this kind of notional idea of what I call the dogweed zone. Yeah. And try not to pick things on the edge of footpaths unless they're at least sort of two or three feet above the ground. It's gorgeous out here today. Apple trees around. Look at the sun on the canopy of that ashwood over there. Oh. Have you eaten plantain before? I've eaten the one that looks like a big banana. This is nothing like that. This is greater plantain. It's common lawn weed. You would cook it as a spinach-like vegetable. Take a look at these seed heads, pull backwards, and the seed comes off in your hand. I use plantain seeds as an ingredient in my mixed seeds mixture that I gather every year. 
The path we're on now is a lot more open than where we were before in the sort of quite closed in woodland space. It's got a much more meadowy feel to it and it feels very summery because of all the flowers and all the insects. Let's get down here, look at that. This is water mint, it's like plasma breaking out in a plasma ball. When you inhale it, it's really deeply relaxing and it makes a very calming herbal tea. Oh, hazelnuts, lovely. Yeah. How many of them have actually got a nut inside? Well, about to find out if my teeth can stand up to it. Oh, we've got a little sheep. I don't know how much they like nettles. It's a bit of an unsung hero, isn't it, nettle? There's an awful lot you can do with it. It's hard to exhaust the number of uses you can put it to. The top part of the stinging nettle. <laughs> You've literally just ripped that out with your bare hands. How are you doing that without getting stung? I'll show you why. Nettle stems are covered in lots of tiny stinging hairs. And at the base of every one of those hairs is a soft gland full of venom. If you rub the plant in this direction, <laughs> all of the needles <laughs> fold upwards and you don't get stung. But if you rub the plant in this direction, they leave a jagged edge which digs into your skin. It's almost like pulling a pint of beer. You know, you're working the, the needle backwards yeah. and it's pumping the venom sac into you. So the nettle does not sting you, you sting yourself. You must grip it firmly in a section with no leaves on, um, but your hand must be already traveling in an upwards direction as you grip. If you grip first, then travel upwards, you'll be stung badly, okay? I'm gonna leave you to that. The young tender tops are a very good green vegetable. They're very rich in iron and they're very high in protein. They make a wonderful tea and even lightly cooked, they no longer sting. One of our local pastimes in the wilds of Wiltshire is raw nettle-eating competitions. And of course the trick is they know how to de-sting the nettles really quickly. So if you roll it up, you stick it on a molar tooth, chomp down hard to release the juice. The final secret is that the juice of the nettle is the antidote to the sting. It's pretty cool. Where I come from, we're famous for pie-eating and I think I'm going to stick with the pies. Hey, we couldn't possibly walk by these. Are they damsons? They're not. These are cherry plums. They've got a really long stalks. So it makes it look like a cherry. Yes. They're lovely, aren't they? It's a walnut tree. I've never seen a walnut tree before. The area we're going through now has opened up like a sort of glade or like a woodland ride. It looks like it's covered in lots of tiny little yellowy-white clouds. This is a perfect example of meadowsweet at the very tips are these creamy white, almost like candy floss yeah. flowers. The thing about meadowsweet is it's like something out of Harry Potter, okay? <laughs> it's got three separate scents. Grab a couple of meadowsweet leaves, put them in between the palms of your hands and rub okay. them together for a few seconds and we're going to do a scrunch and smell test. So after maybe about 20 seconds, have yeah. a smell. It smells really medicinal, a bit like... TCP or disinfectant or something like that. Keep rubbing a little more. Maybe for a minute. You should start to detect marzipan at some <gasps> point. Love marzipan. If you keep going, <laughs> you get the third smell. Cucumber skin. Cucumber, that's Cucumber, very specific. Highly random and specific. <laughs> The marzipani thing is what we're really focusing on as a flavouring. Follow an elderflower cordial recipe. 
but just use meadow sweet flower heads instead of elder flower heads and the end result is even more delightful. So we just walked past burdock. They're a great vegetable. They're cultivating on a massive scale in the northeastern parts of China and Mongolia and Siberia and used as a staple food crop. But over here, we've hardly heard of them. Is it vastly different, the foraging sort of culture within different places in the world? Yeah, there are massive differences. Swiss chestnuts is a common food in Hong Kong. It's used widely in a number of different dishes. My favourite one is the chicken stew. We even make dessert out of it. Instead of using icing, they will mash chestnuts. Yeah, I don't really quite know what they're used in the UK apart from stuffing turkey. <laughs> My name is Andrew Chen. I live in Slough. The first time I went to pick chestnuts was pretty amazing because I didn't realize that there were so many. Basically, it was the whole floor was covered in chestnuts and no one picking them. If I imagine that happens in Hong Kong, I don't think anything will be left on the floor. <laughs> it is a childhood memory of mine when we were back in Hong Kong, when people will just roast the sweet chestnuts at the side of the streets and you can smell the smell of the chestnuts far away. We always just buy a bag of these sweet chestnuts, uh, either on our way to cinema or on our way back home. When we want to eat sweet chestnuts, we need to buy it from supermarket. When I moved to the UK, some of our friends, they said there are chestnuts that we can pick. I made a mistake. I I picked a lot of horse chestnuts because they, <laughs> they look quite similar. And horse chestnuts actually is quite attractive because they are quite big and round. And we thought that, oh, the chestnuts in the UK is so big. <laughs> Once I found it and I can recognize it, then I bought my mum. Well, it's kind of an annual event every October. It does help us to bring our family together. After picking chestnuts, we can enjoy them in the afternoon together as a family across the generation, so between my mum and my sons as well. Foraging is so much more than gathering food. There's much about the experience as what you actually collect at the end of it. Absolutely. Do you fancy a break? I always fancy a break. Sitting down in this meadow, you know, I'm just right at the start of finding out about foraging, but it does make me think about our ancestors. This is where they got all their food from. There's an old saying that the lightest toolkit in the world is knowledge. We have lost so much of that now. While we may have lost the skills to identify edible plants visually, we likely still use many of the instincts passed down from our ancestors to identify safe and nutritious food every day. Here's Guldenese Salali, Fellow in Evolutionary Anthropology at the University College London. Why do we taste sweet, savoury, salty, bitter and sour? Well, the answer is very much related to the diet of our ancestors. Sour taste allowed us to detect the vitamin C rich fruits and sweet taste allowed us to detect calorie dense fruits. We are able to perceive bitter taste because it's an adaptation for detecting potentially toxic molecules in food. 
Savory taste is a marker for easily digested proteins that are found in aged or cooked meats. And this is probably why we developed a preference for a savory taste. On the other hand, many species have lost some or all their taste receptors. Cats have lost their sweet taste receptors, so they don't taste sweet. Having those receptors were not advantageous or necessary for their survival. So next time you get that craving for chocolate, you could just argue that it's your ancestors telling you you need that dairy milk for the survival of the species. I can see a purple flower, a horrible invasive species, unfortunately, (laughs) Himalayan balsam. The seed pods particularly nice stir-fried. The more I can get people to eat this and get rid of it, the better for all of us. If this was fully ripe, when I touched it, the pod would literally explode. The seed goes flying everywhere, and that's why it's so successful. So put a bag over the head, put your hand up in the bag and pick the pods off. We're walking through here. This whole big, wide, flat meadow, you do just have to be a little bit careful what's underfoot. Ticks are a real concern. More and more these days, they're carrying tick-borne diseases like Lyme disease. It pays you to tuck your trousers into your socks... When you get home, always strip all of your clothes off and just check yourself over thoroughly. Just walking past some apple trees, they're already starting to go ripe. You can tell that we're not that far off coming into autumn now. The autumn certainly is when the mushrooms start really coming in. I'm always a little bit wary about fungi. There's plenty of danger out there. They're not more dangerous than plants, but they can be harder to identify. What have we got here? the carrot family. The dark side of foraging, you've got things like fennel, caraway, and carrots and parsnips. This is actually hemlock, and this is really a perfect illustration of why people who are learning to forage need to not wade in at the deep end without getting some expert help. Many of these plants in the carrot family superficially look very, very similar to each other, and if you just look at pictures in a book, you're not really going to get the nuances of that. And in this case, if you were to actually eat some of this leaf down here, which is its actually very beautiful. It looks like a carrot leaf. If you were to eat that, you'd probably die. Wow, Okay. You wouldn't even have to eat that much of it. Really? Really. It is so, so toxic. Turn around and take a look behind you. This is common hogweed. The seed of the common hogweed is used as a cooking spice. If you wish, do you want to have a little tiny nibble? It's a strong flavour. Just take one of them off? Yeah. That always tastes slightly aniseedy to me, a bit like ouzo. This looks like a lot of other things, actually. Tall appearance with this umbel of little tiny white florets and long stems at the top. Yeah, you've got to be really careful about these things, haven't you? All rangers are taught very early on to mine for giant hogweed. You know, one strum of a giant hogweed and you're going to know about it on your skin for the rest of your life. Even brushing against it can give you really nasty third-degree burns. Other members of this family have the same danger attached to them as giant hogweed. Strumming through wild parsnip and getting the sap on your skin can also cause DNA damage. Even the garden parsnip that we grow on our allotments, the leafy parts contains these substances which cause DNA damage to the skin and sensitise it to sunlight for years on end. Swallowing something is a huge commitment, Okay, It could end your life very, very rapidly. When you come out here, you're really looking at fine details You need to be 110% certain. Where are we going now? Well, I'm going to keep it a secret. 
and I'm going to take you to find one of the tastiest of all berry fruits because it's the fruit season now, but uh, you have to promise not to tell anyone where it is. I promise. Gail Guide's honour. Do you have to come to these sort of out-of-the-way places to forage or can you do it anywhere? I mean, I've never really fancied foraging along roadsides or in sort of busy urban areas. I think your instinct not to forage from the side of busy roads is a good one. But pretty much everywhere there's a foraging opportunity. Whether you're on the coast, whether you're on cliffs or on the beach, or whether you're inland in, in hedgerows, out in the woods, even out in some nice grassland or sheep pasture, you'll find lots and lots of things. And every habitat's got its own special gems. Okay, so take a look around you. Do you spot anything? That is a very unusual looking trip. And they've got these weird, almost like weird little red pine cones attached to the I twigs. know. Now then, go under the canopy and look up. Oh, it's covered in them. Some of them, they almost look like blackberries and raspberries. This is uh, Morris nigra, the black mulberry. I've also noticed some other inhabitants in this tree. Hello. Hello there. Are you picking mulberries by any chance? We, we, I'm here with my daughter and we come and pick mulberries and then we make a pie. Oh, lovely. Yeah. So let's have a look. See if we can find any that are ripe enough. It looks like some bit further up that branch. Has it come off? That's come off nice and easy. Give it a go. Oh, very juicy. It's got more of a black currency flavour, but it's much, much sweeter. And it's yeah. definitely more flavoursome than blackberry or raspberry, I would say, way by more, a long way shot. More. When we were kids, we had these sweets called cola bottles. They're sort of like blackcurrant versions of cola bottles to me. I love them. Mulberries don't have a good shelf life. So the best thing you can possibly do with mulberries is stand there and eat them until you feel sick. <laughs> So you've proven to me you're an expert forager. Now I'm hoping to going to prove that you're an expert chef as well. Let's go back to my place and we'll give it a go. We've got lots of things to show you. So I'm putting some plantain seed into the skillet there. And we've looked at the flavouring qualities of the hogweed. And we've got nettle seed and that goes in the seed mix. This is going to be a topping for our oat cake. We're going to add some tamari, which is a wheat-free soy sauce. Oh, that and smells gorgeous. We're doing this sort of in a controlled environment in your back garden because fire in the outdoors is not a good thing on a lot of cases. I've got some dried dandelion root here. We're going to make some dandelion coffee. Lovely. And we're just going to let it sort of percolate for a while. It smells amazing. Those are ready to dish up. I think we should try some of these little starters. There you go. Okay. Try, try one with wild seed sprinkles on first. Oh, lovely. Oh, it's salty, nutty, and that is absolutely delicious. Coffee shots, if you wish. Tastes like an espresso. Mm. It's a fantastic get-up you've got here, Fred. Outdoor cookers, and then we've got a table and a jug of a pink drink. Is that pink gin? This is the nettle maceration. Right, I'm going to try a bit of this. It does look like Pims. It's so fresh tasting, isn't it? And it smells like a summer meadow. Now, we've got a couple of little liqueurs here to finish off. Ooh. Chanterelle liqueurs made with a group of really sought-after culinary mushrooms. OK, here we go. That is lovely. It has 
an amaretto quality, not quite as thick and syrupy and no. heavy. Definitely you you can make this with fresh chanterelles or dried ones. That's the taste of the forest in the autumn. Yeah. Well, with some vodka. With some vodka. <laughs> I've definitely caught the foraging bug, and I'm guessing a lot of people listening to this podcast have been inspired too. So where would you recommend going to sort of help you on the foraging journey? So you need to really get out there with an expert. Maybe go to your local wildlife trust, go out on some wild plant or wild mushroom identification walks basically um, pick their brains thank you so much for taking me out today i spend my life working in nature and a lot of these plants that we have looked at today i would just usually pass by and you know it's added another layer to what i will notice when i go out on my walks i'd just like to say one thing let nature bless your footsteps cheers cheers Thanks for listening to this episode of the National Trust podcast. We hope this episode has inspired you and introduced you to the wonderful world of foraging. However, this episode is not meant to be an instructive guide. Remember, Fred's foraging and stuntman nettle picking skills have taken years of study. If you want to find out more about foraging, please do learn with an expert. And when you're 100% confident about what you're picking, Please use common sense like only picking for personal use and leaving plenty for nature. It's possible to forage in a wide range of spaces, but you should check out guidelines and seek permission if needed. To catch all our episodes, subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And to find more audio programmes produced by the National Trust, go to nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash podcast. Until next time, from me, Kate Martin, goodbye.